All right, good morning, everyone. If you could make your way to your seats. And if you have your Bible or if you want to turn on your Bible, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 47 today. We're continuing our series called Follow Me, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're coming to the very end, right near the end. Uh, everything is building to these moments now that we're reading, and I'll echo what Kenneth said. So glad to see our college students back here. It's just a joy to see your faces and look forward to all that the Lord has in store for you in this coming year. In Mark's gospel so far, Mark has described the cruelty and the mockery experienced by Jesus on the cross. And now he concludes with miraculous signs and very dramatic words confirming Jesus' identity as the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Teresa is going to read for us here this morning, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 47. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us see and understand the mission of Jesus Christ that we would understand the significance of his death and of his burial, and that we would leave here today understanding what effect that has on our lives, and that we would be grateful, and it would cause us to worship and praise you and to exalt your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present now with us as we listen to your word, as we engage your word. Lord, speak to our, our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So signs and symbols in the Bible 
point to something usually much larger than themselves. And signs are used all the time in regular life. We see safety signs like high voltage or do not enter or danger. And if you drive, you're driving along and there are road signs like, hey, fork in the road or yield or how about a stop sign? When you see them, the important thing is you don't want to miss what they signify or else you'll get in big trouble. You blow through a stop sign, something bad's going to happen. You touch the high voltage stuff, something bad's going to happen. So signs are used by God in the Bible to, to give us insight and to help us live our lives in the way that God wants us to live them and to understand the things are, that are important to him. So when we see them, we don't want to miss them or what they signify. And in our passage, there are some signs and symbols that we don't want to miss. These signs explain the mission of Jesus, and they help us to understand the meaning of his death and of his burial. You see, this whole gospel of Mark is addressing a big problem, a problem that all of us have, and the problem is this. God is holy, and we are not. Now, that might not at first sound like a big deal, but ultimately it is a really big deal. God, being holy, is perfect in all his ways. Yet because of our sin, our choice to rebel against God and his ways and his authority and his sovereignty in our lives, we create a real dilemma for ourselves. We separate ourselves from God, and we then stand deservedly under God's wrath because we choose to go our own way, and what is holy cannot coexist with what is not holy. And every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so each and every one of us has a huge problem. And Mark, in his gospel, is now coming to help us see how this problem gets resolved. And it's not going to be through human effort. It's not going to be through just trying harder. No, God resolves the problem of his holiness and our sin through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see that Jesus is engulfed in darkness because of our sin. Jesus, however, lived in perfect conformity to the will of God. He's the only one that ever has. He was sinless. But on the cross, Jesus suffers and dies. And he receives punishment from God that we deserve. Because he took our sin upon himself. And his suffering, this darkness that he experiences, this wrath of God, ultimately leads to forgiveness for us and reconciliation with God. So here today, at the death and the burial of Jesus, we find out truly what is most important about our salvation, and that it was won for us through Jesus Christ. So I have two points today. I want us to look at the significance of Christ's death and then I want to look at three different responses to Christ's death. And the main point of this message is this. The death of Jesus proves that he is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. So my first point is this. The significance of Christ's death. We're going to look at three different aspects from the story. There's a lot in here, so I can't get to everything. But I, I chose three particular aspects of these passages to really highlight and to prove for us the significance of Christ's death on the cross 
First, if you look in your Bibles, verse 33, the darkness. Darkness symbolizes God's judgment. And in, by way of a symbol, if you were driving from the beach and coming up 95, and it's Saturday and you're coming back, and you get to Fredericksburg, what's going to happen? Exactly. You're going to hit a lot of traffic. And the sign says traffic ahead, right? You know something bad is happening coming up ahead. Well, in a similar way, this is how this sign works, this darkness that comes over the land. God is showing us a big sign. There's trouble ahead. Something's happening here. At the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock noon, darkness came over the land. And for three hours, it was pitch black, dark, couldn't see. Mark does not try to explain the darkness, but it's clearly a supernatural event. And it must have been striking for anyone who was in the area. The utter darkness, the silence that was there. And there's a gap in Mark's narrative. We don't really know about anything that happens over the course of those three hours. But there was darkness over the land. And you might think, well, what does the, bark, uh, the darkness symbolize? Well, in the Bible, darkness can symbolize a lot of different things. It can relate to our shameful, wicked deeds. Scripture talks about how we walk in darkness. It can also identify or point to spiritual forces. There are powers over this present darkness. Darkness can also, as I said, represent judgment from God. If you look back at the plagues in Egypt, the ninth plague was a darkness over the land. But in our context here, the aspect of darkness that weighs most heavily is the darkness that is symbolic of separation from God because of sin. You see, Jesus was taking the sin of the world upon himself. In the Old Testament, this was predicted. Isaiah 53, 6 says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in the New Testament, it's confirmed in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus is being punished in our place, the innocent for the guilty. The darkness of our rebellion against God and God's divine judgment come together during this time of darkness. It takes over the whole land while Jesus suffers hanging on the cross. So let me ask you a question. How bad must our sin be to deserve this type of punishment? You know, I think in our day and age, we don't talk about sin a whole lot. Even within Christian communities, we don't talk about it a whole lot. It's kind of, oh, sin, that's kind of an older word. Clearly in society, nobody talks about sin. Nobody can even agree what a sin would be anymore because there's such a lack of understanding of what truth is. Everything's so relative. But God is very clear about what sin is. Sin is when we choose to go our own way. Sin is when we decide to not follow God's rules. We say, no, we know better than you. We're gonna go our own way. And so if God says to love people, we feel it's okay to hate them. If God says to be kind, we take it upon ourselves to get angry. And so sin is something that we are all acquainted with, but we don't talk about it very often. And yet the reality is, and Scripture confirms this, that we all sin 
and fall short of God's requirements, his holy, righteous requirements. And even in our smallest sins, those impure thoughts or those unkind deeds or careless words, we defy God's sovereign authority as ruler over our lives. All our sins do violence to his holiness, to his glory, and to his righteousness. We basically tell God, forget you. I don't need you, and I'm not going to live under your authority. And this goes from the great sins to the very small sins. They all have their same root in the pride of our hearts that said, I don't need God. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, every sin no matter how seemingly insignificant, is truly an act of treason against the cosmic king. But like I say, we don't think about this so often. And yet when we come to a passage like this and we understand this darkness, it's an opportunity for us to slow our lives down a little bit and stop and ponder. How bad is my sin? And why did my sin need to be punished in the way that it was? Because I think the Lord wants us to understand the depravity of our hearts and the sinfulness of our sin so that, not that we just sit there and walk around, oh, I'm a terrible sinner, blah, blah, blah. No, I think God does this because he wants to see what a great salvation he has provided for us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. See, sometimes to understand something that's great, you have to have something to compare it to. You have to understand the contrast and when we see the sinfulness of our hearts and we see the cost that was paid, we realize how amazing it is what God provided for us in a salvation that comes by grace and not by works. A grace that comes through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so friends, we need to be honest with ourselves. Coming to Jesus requires a brokenness and a humble admission of guilt that leads us to a right understanding of Jesus as our savior. And so this darkness symbolizes the magnitude of what Jesus suffered on the cross and the terrible nature of sin. And as his life ends amid the darkness, he cries out. And this is my second aspect on here to look at. Look at verse 34, the cry. This cry in verse 34, it indicates the separation that Jesus experienced from God as part of the punishment for sin. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a psalm of David, a psalm about an innocent man suffering unjustly. And he's crying out to God because he doesn't experience God's presence in the moment. And so Jesus hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, abandoned by his friends, destroyed by his enemies, and now forsaken and abandoned by God as God punished our sin that he bore for us. You see, God the Father looked at Jesus, his son, with whom he had always been well pleased, whom he had always loved, and he punished him and excluded him from his presence. This cry testifies that at the cross, Jesus was suffering separation from God, a separation that he had never known before. It was alien to him. And Mark's focus is on the gloomy darkness, the agonizing suffering and aloneness of the Son of God. 
And here we see that Jesus is truly forsaken. You know, this is the only time in the Bible where Jesus speaks of the Father as God and not as Father. There was a separation taking place. And the significance of this cry is debated. Some think it's a cry of anger or unbelief or despair or rage. But I think a better understanding of this and interpretation of this, especially when we look back at Hebrews, is that it was a real cry of abandonment, of being forsaken. You see, in the darkness, he was absolutely alone. He was God-forsaken. And it was an actual and dreadful separation that took place between the Father and the Son. And the gravity of this is that it was because of our sin and not his. He's serving as a substitute for us and for our sin. And there's some mystery about the paradox that while God is forsaking his son, Jesus, the unity of the Trinity is not unbroken, but that's for a separate message. But, but as I thought about this and about this cry of being alone and forsaken, I thought about just the topic of being alone in general. And I was never alone until, or experienced really being alone in my life until I was about 21 years old and I was living off campus down at JMU. I grew up in a family with eight kids and truly you are never alone in a family like that. But my roommates had gone away for the weekend and I was lying there at night and I realized there's nobody in the home. And I'll be honest with you, I got scared. I started hearing stuff going on. I was like, what, what's that? You know, what's you know, there's, there's something uncomfortable at times about being alone. And so knowing how terrible that is, I thought about it a little bit deeper, and I thought how much worse it would feel if someone that I love made me be alone. What would the gravity of that situation be? How much would that hurt? And I thought it would hurt a lot. Somebody I love, knowing that I don't want to be alone, and then makes me alone. This cry was a real cry that Jesus had. But the beauty in this cry is that the work that Jesus was accomplishing on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin is that for those who believe in him, you will never be alone. That's the ironic part of this whole thing is that in being our substitute, he takes on our sin, takes on our punishment, but we get a great reward. The things that we deserve, he takes. The things that we don't deserve, he gives. In dying on the cross for our sins, he restores to us a right relationship with God and a promise that Jesus makes is that he will never leave us nor what? Forsake us. You see the connection in God's word? These themes all tie together, and they're so important for us. And I love this because, as I said, I don't like to be alone. And as I think back through different times in my life, no matter how hard things have been, and especially over these last three and a half years, we've just been through a lot as a family. And yet I can honestly tell you one thing has never been a concern for me. And that is that I would ever be alone in the midst of the trial. It didn't mean that my trials were all going to be taken away by God. No, the trials kept coming and coming and coming. Having faith in Christ doesn't mean that God just says your life's going to be pain-free. 
then actually in many ways your life continues to have pain and then even added some at times because of how people respond to you as being a Christian. But in the normal course of life, we all go through many trials and struggles. But what a comfort it is to know that I will never be forsaken. So in those long nights when you're thinking about what's going on and you're not sure what's going to happen the next day, and to be able to know that God is there with you, to comfort you, to encourage you, it's a great thing. And it's something that you end up treasuring more than anything else going on because you realize that it develops a deeper relationship that you can have with Christ. In Jesus' cry of abandonment, we see terrible punishment, don't we? But we also see the depth of God's love and that he is rescuing us by forsaking his son. So what is God's perspective on the cross and what Jesus is doing? is this third aspect, the tearing of the temple curtain. Look at verses 37 and 38. If there were road signs for this, there would be two. One says new road, okay, so there's a new way of going. And the other sign would say welcome. You see, the tearing of the temple curtain represents an end to the sacrificial system as they knew it. And it symbolizes access to God directly through Jesus. Verse 37 says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And so here we have, very simply, the death of Jesus. Verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this signifies that it was a direct act of God from on high. He tore this temple. You see, the problem since the Garden of Eden is that the way to approach God was going to require some type of mediation and some type of sacrifice to pay for our sins. And in the Jewish sacrificial system, one day above all days stood out every year, and that was the Day of Atonement. Each year, annually, the high priest would bathe himself, put on a white linen outfit, select a bull to be sacrificed for his sins or for his family, And then he would cast lots over two goats, one to be sacrificed and then one to be sent into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And the high priest would go to the most holy place where God dwelled among his people in all purity. It was the holiest place in the world. And there's a picture of it. Hopefully you can see some of it. Within the temple construct, you had the outer courts and then the inner courts and then you have the holy place and then you have the most holy place. And it was accessed one time per year for this particular day of atonement. And what separated the holy place from the most holy place was this huge 30 by 30 curtain that was there. And it was thick, not just a thin curtain. It was a very thick curtain. And the design was to make it clear that God was unapproachable. It was like there was a do not enter sign on that curtain. Because sinners could not just simply live with God without sacrifice. In front, as I said, was this thick, heavy curtain. And as Jesus dies, the temple curtain is torn in two. So what's happening? Well, first, there's a new road. God is showing that the true and final sacrifice for sin has been paid for. No more bulls and goats and pigeons and birds and everything else sacrificed. No, all those sacrifices and offerings 
are going to be done away with and are done away with. Because now through Jesus Christ, God's perfect sacrifice, full payment has been made for all the sins. Huge transformation, big issue, new road ahead. This was a complete change of direction. This was going to turn everything upside down. You see, Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we don't have to pay anymore. He paid for us. And that means that we don't have to try to earn or work our way back to God. We don't have to try to get everything right so that God will say, okay, I'll let you come in. No, what he says is, if you have faith in my son and believe in him and that he died on the cross for your sins, you can come in anytime. You can even come in when you've made some big mistakes and sinned against me. If you come humbly, you are welcome into the presence of God. Not because of who you are, and not because of your good works, and not because you're just a little bit better than the person sitting next to you. No, we all come in with the same passport, and it's the one that says Jesus on it. You can enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ alone. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. And so that's what's going on here with the temple curtain. There's a new way to now have access to God. And this welcome sign now says, this is the way into God's presence. It's now open to sinners through Jesus who died for their sins and shed his blood for them. Friends, our debt has been paid in full. Our sin has been washed away. And we can now stand in God's presence, not on a righteousness of our own, but clothed in the righteousness that is given to us through Christ. I've been a Christian over 30 years now, and this still amazes me. I was so convinced early on in my life that the only way God would ever be happy with a person like me is if I tried really hard. I gotta be a good person. I gotta try to do good. And yet, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I'm sure some of you have. The harder you tried, the more you failed or at least the more obvious your failures were to you. And when you get to that place, you start to despair a little bit, and you realize, you know what, I just don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think this is going to work so well. And you grow weary, and you get tired. And when I come to a passage like this and realize that that temple has been torn in two, not because of anything that I've done, but what God has done for me through Christ, it gives me great joy, and I'm amazed by that. And I hope we are encouraged in the scriptures with that understanding. You see, Jesus and his death, it changes everything in our lives. And his death proves that he is the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it also demonstrates God's great love for us because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So my second point, and this will be more brief, is I just want to look at three quick responses here in the text about how people responded to Christ's death. And I want to ask you to think about where do you see yourself in this text? How might you respond had you been there when Jesus died? First, we look at the unbeliever. Look at verse 39. We see a story of a Roman centurion, which is basically the captain of about 80 to 100 men, tough, seasoned, 
experienced soldier. And he was in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. So he saw the mockery, the brutality. He had probably done this lots of times. But there was something different that he experienced when he saw Jesus. You see, he saw that Jesus was telling the truth about himself. He really was the king of the Jews. Mark uses the phrase son of God here for Jesus because it's an important title. It indicates Messiahship and the unique relationship that Jesus had with the Father. And from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, he uses this title, Son of God. The Father, when he sees Jesus at his baptism and at the transfiguration, uses the phrase, Son of God. The demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. It's implied in the parables and at Jesus' trial But the disciples never quite got it because the title Son of God was going to mean not only that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was also going to be the suffering servant. And that was always the difficulty. They wanted a Messiah that was going to be victorious. They weren't really so sure they wanted a Messiah that was going to die on a cross, be defeated. And so now in Mark's gospel, at the climax of the crucifixion, A pagan centurion acknowledges it. You see, Mark's audience was likely likely filled with Romans. And so it's fitting that this final reference to Jesus as the Son of God in this gospel should be uttered by a Roman. You can see how, how that would have gotten their attention. Hey, Son of God, hey, Roman centurion calling Jesus a Son of God. If he can call Jesus a Son of God, Wow, I better pay attention because he was there. He crucified this guy. And now he's calling him a son of God. But this centurion, having seen the beating, the mocking, the scorn, the darkness, and the way Jesus conducted himself, well, the centurion makes a significant acknowledgement. He sees something. He sees with the eyes of faith that Jesus truly is the son of God. We're not given any additional details on this. It just says, that's what he said. But there's great significance in this because in saying that he is the son of God, it helps us to know that the Gentiles will be included in God's plan of salvation. You see, God's plan wasn't going to involve just the Israelites. No, he was going to involve all the nations, every nation, tongue, and tribe. And we look around this room and realize that this is being lived out today in our church Because this is what God was planning, that he was going to have a big family. And that family was going to come from all different backgrounds. And they were going to join together. And so we see that there's hope for the Gentiles and good news for all nations. So where do you see Jesus? Or what do you see in Jesus? Sorry. If you're an unbeliever here today... And maybe you've come a few times and you've heard some things from the Bible. I would encourage you to start asking asking yourself some hard questions like, what do I actually believe about him? Do I really think my sins need to be forgiven? And if so, was his sacrifice sufficient for me? And I'd encourage you, if you're not sure and you don't have answers to these questions, come to the Christianity Explorer class that Kenneth was talking about. Get involved in a Bible study here at the church or over on campus. But if you're here and these are the questions that you're starting to ask, God's trying to get your attention. And I want to encourage you to respond. 
The second person or group of people are those who are marginalized. Look at verse 40. It says, there were also women looking on from a distance. Then in verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then verse 47, they saw where he was laid. You see, Jesus' male disciples had all deserted him after his arrest. And Peter followed, but then denied him and fled as well. But it was the women disciples who remained faithful and are now observing the crucifixion from afar. And why this is so startling is that in its day, women were not viewed in Judaism as reliable witnesses. They couldn't even testify in court. But Jesus elevated the status of women to the, to the position of disciples. And this was unheard of. You see, follow language. When they follow Jesus, this is the language of discipleship. Surprising, even shocking in the first century Jewish context. But how glorious that Jesus would make sure that these women were viewed as equal. Image bearers of God. And these are the disciples who view what's going on. They were ministering to the needs of Jesus and those with him. These women will be important witnesses looking on not only at his death and his burial, but they will go to the empty tomb and they will be the witnesses at the resurrection. And their role emphasizes the historical reliability of the accounts. So why do I draw attention to them and I call them the marginalized? And I'd say because a lot of people can feel marginalized. You might not feel like you fit in. You might not feel like you have it all together like other people do. And you might think that as a result of that, that you're sort of a second-class citizen with regards to being in God's kingdom. You're not like everybody else. And I would encourage you, this passage alone can tell you that, no, God uses everybody in his kingdom. And every person in his kingdom is valued and appreciated and is gifted by God to fulfill his purposes in the world that he's placed you in. It might not always seem significant. You might not always understand exactly why God has you doing certain things. But at the end of the day, what we're aiming for isn't to try to understand everything that God is doing. The goal of our salvation is to be able to receive from God the commendation that says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's exactly what we see in these women. They had followed him from Galilee. They come down to Jerusalem. Jesus dies on a cross, and yet their faith remains. They were walking by faith and not by sight because they believed Jesus. And I think for all of us, when we feel marginalized, that's the important thing. Make sure we keep our eyes on Jesus and follow him as disciples. And the third person, Joseph of Arimathea, look at verse 42. It says, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I call this one blessed. Joseph serves as a picture of how to respond with courage to the reality of the death of Christ, and yet... Joseph was a, a blessed man. He was part of the council, the Jewish ruling council. He obviously was well thought of, and yet he takes on a big task. He goes to Pilate 
which was a great risk because it wasn't a great time to go to Pilate to talk about Jesus. Pilate had just condemned Jesus to die on a cross, and yet here's Joseph saying, can I have his body? They had just crucified the king of the Jews, and yet he humbly goes and obeys so that Jesus could receive a proper burial. He was giving up his reputation. I'm sure the council members were not going to be pleased. He was giving financially because tombs were not cheap. But Jesus is standing, but Joseph is standing with Jesus when almost everyone around him had turned away. You know, it takes a certain amount of courage to be a Christian. And for those of us who are blessed and we know and experience the goodness of God through Jesus Christ, too much is given, much is expected as well. And sometimes our faith is going to be tested because we're going to be called to be courageous. And increasingly in the world around us, you need to be courageous to be a Christian. You can't just sort of skate along and just hope that everything goes okay. No, your faith will be confronted in the marketplace, in the classroom, on the playground, in the sporting events, wherever you are in life, being a Christian is not a badge of honor for most people. And so having a courage that comes from God through faith in Jesus is important for all of us because it can be intimidating to identify with Jesus. We can shrink back. But if we're tempted that way, I'd encourage us to go back and look at the story of Joseph and to realize the courage that he had to stand with Jesus even when it looked like all was lost. But he stood in faith and he made sure that Jesus was properly cared for. It's a beautiful act of kindness that he does for Jesus. After all that Jesus had endured, it's the first kind thing we really see, isn't it? So at different times and in different ways, we will all have Joseph's choice presented to us. A situation will come up where we're going to need courage Courage to do what God wants us to do. And I know that God, he will provide us that courage because he says he will never forsake us. And you see how this all ties together? Coming to faith in Christ, it brings unimaginable blessings for us. And sometimes we don't even know exactly how it's all going to play out. Like in this situation, God uses Joseph's act of devotion in a way that Joseph could never imagine. You see, the donated tomb will become the scene of one of God's most wonderful events in human history. It's where he raised Jesus from the grave. See, you never know what you're currently doing and how God might use it. And the important thing isn't to try to figure out exactly what you're supposed to do and all the significance of it. No, the important thing is find out what to do because this is what God's calling you to do. And so there's an obedience of faith that's called here in the story of Joseph of Arimathea and the burial of Jesus. So of these three different people, who do you identify with? The unbeliever, the marginalized, the blessed? They all lead to the same person, don't they? To Jesus Christ. The death and burial of Jesus demonstrates to us that Jesus truly is the Son of God who paid the penalty of our sins and who has reconciled us to God. By believing in him, our sins are forgiven and we have new life in Christ and we're to follow him by faith. The death of Jesus proves that he is the son of God who takes away the sins of the world, your sins and mine. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would 
bless the rest of our time here together as we ponder the great work of Jesus and the wonderful work of Jesus that he did in securing for us such a great salvation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.